In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'll begin with a quote, and I quote, We know the most perfect way of seeking God, and the most suitable order, is not for us to attempt with bold curiosity to penetrate to the investigation of his essence, which we ought more to adore than meticulously search out, but for us to contemplate him in his works, whereby he renders himself near and familiar to us, and in some manner communicates himself. It is fitting, therefore, for us to pursue this particular search for God, which may so hold our mental powers suspended in wonderment, as at the same time to stir us deeply. And as Augustine teaches elsewhere, because disheartened by his greatness, we cannot grasp him, we ought to gaze upon his works, that we may be restored by his goodness. We ought to gaze upon his works, that we may be restored by his goodness. End quote. John Calvin, Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1, Chapter 9. Today's collect has a somewhat contemporary ring to it. Almighty God, you have created the heavens and the earth and made us in your own image. Teach us to discern your hand in all your works and your likeness in all your children. Before half of you were born, at the time I was coming to faith in Christ, this collect was put in new and fresh in the year 1980 into the book of alternative services, the alternative service book, rather, of the Church of England. At the time, I found this collect and its call upon us to bring God and the creation together to be deeply meaningful in a way uh, helping the hounds of heaven to bring me closer to the throne of the God of heaven and earth. Over time, I began to see this collect as rather shrill and shallow, uh, pandering to all the ecological do-gooders in the world and those who were trying too hard to reduce God to his creation. Over the time since then, with experience more of God and his creation, I have come to see the boldness and the wisdom of this collect. But it is a bold collect. All your works, all your children, we are to be so equipped that we may detect, we may identify the hand of the creator in his handwork, may look out at this collocation of atoms and neurons that we call the universe, that we call nature, nobody calls a creation anymore, as something inspired, animated, shot through with the divine? Yes. That is exactly what we want and what we need as we peer into the 21st century. It is the cry of our heart, a heart broken by the power of evil, unleashed through the technological prowess the new skills that have been given to a very old 
and broken heart in humanity. And we know that this cry for the preservation, the care, and starting above all with the discernment of a gracious God working through his creation is a matter of life and death. For us to know that our creator is and that we are, we live and breathe and have our being in a world which has its origins in him and which is like us, not just stamped with his image, but lives and breathes with the breath and life of his very being. We need this message now more than ever, and that's why a collect like this has certainly not been written in the last 500 years. Now, in which the default position is more and more that we and all the other stuff around us are just some more space junk whirling around until the cosmos winds down. We need to know that we are not alone in all this, that we belong, and that so does everything else that is along for the ride with us. Matter matters. Matter matters, as George MacLeod presbyter of the Church of Scotland and founder of the Iona community in Scotland was wont to say, matter matters. And like MacLeod and others of us who have lain awake at nights and stumbled asleep through the day, counting and recounting the five points of that theologically botanical genus TULIP, the acronym for the five points of Calvinism in which both MacLeod and I did much of our journeyman work in the faith, this is an unsettling place to come to rest. Matter matters. We recognize that the midpoint, the hinge of this very conceptual botanical object is the L in TULIP, limited atonement, that is, which sets forth that whether matter matters or not, even inasmuch as that matter is formed into animate beings, even inasmuch as those animate beings are human beings, What matters are the elect. I quote, The doctrine states that Jesus Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross only efficacious for those who are predestined unto salvation. And its primary benefits are not given to all of humanity, but rather just to believers. It is sufficient for the salvation of all, but efficient only for the elect. Very well put. Sufficient for the salvation of all but efficient only for the elect. There's plenty of it to go around, this redeeming grace, but only the chosen few get to partake of it. Now, we look at our catechism, and we see somewhat the same. This is the section on the creed. I thank our Heavenly Father that has called me to salvation through Jesus Christ, our catechist says. And then he goes on to say, From the creed I learned to believe first in God the Father, who has made me and all the world, me and all the world, second in God the Son, who has redeemed me and all mankind, that means womankind, and third, I think, in God the Holy Spirit, who sanctifies me and all the elect people of God. So, the Father has made the whole world, and even though it is the Father who has called them out, It is the Son who has provided sufficient redemption for all humanity. And finally, the Holy Spirit, whose efficacious work applies that redeeming grace only to the elect. This is an Anglican term, the elect. The world, all of creation, human beings, and then the elect. 
the scope and scale of redemption there, apparently here, no here, no here. You and me and a few others, we hope. Now, as glorious as that is, and it is glorious, it can sound on a cold and bad day like the law of diminishing returns. That is the classical position, the traditional position, and I will say the most widely accepted understanding too. If you look at how Christians behave, how they live out their lives in their habitus, the world, the creation in which they have been placed. Where does all this find its origination? In scripture and in the text we've heard today, specifically one verse here in John's Gospel. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Came to his own world, and his own people, as we translated, did not receive him. The hinge pin here, then, for a complex text. It starts with God in Christ, that is, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Not a strange, unfamiliar, dark space, however, this world to which divinity now comes to pay a visit. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He came to his own. That's Christ, by the way, the creator as well as the Father. The co-creator, if you will, who with the Father and the Spirit has made this whole thing. For by him, that's Christ. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. We switch to Paul, as you know. That's not technically speaking the father of whom Paul is speaking just now. It is the son, Christ. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, all things were created through him, Christ, and for him, Christ, created through him, and for him, and he, Christ, is before all things, and in him, Christ, all things hold together, through him, for him, in him. Okay? Now, I stress this because I know that my ears hear this and then try to shake it off still to this day. They've been conditioned by those same traditions which are our traditions and which give us strength and a point of orientation. But this is scripture I'm reading. And this is scripture here that is putting Christ into a very much expanded and enhanced role, especially if we withdraw the whole concept of God from that of the world, which is that God is some abstract entity who might have wound this whole creation up at the beginning of time and then has withdrawn to watch it wind down. Very much the God that came into our church in the 18th century especially. Does this not take that long lens, which we used from our catechism, that long zoom lens, which narrowed right in on the elect and turned it around, pulling back, until all of creation is enclosed within the frame. The shot now, the boundaries, the limits of the frame include everything. The sufficiency of Christ, in other words, not just plucking people here and there out of a morass, 
but gathering all of creation, animate and inanimate, into the expanse of his embrace. That's the vision we get in Colossians, in Ephesians. As N.T. Wright has said, if at the time of the Reformation we built more of our theology on Colossians and Ephesians, and then on Romans and Galatians, we would have a very different view of things. But you can't undo all of that overnight, and I'm not even suggesting that undoing that is our task. But I think our task is to hear those voices and to begin to take note of that call to go to another part where we see the work of God in Christ from a perspective that we haven't looked at really since the early church. Now, we know that humans, the elect, are to be justified, made right with God through faith. The just through their faith are saved. And I'm not willing to give that up, even though that was the key word of the Reformation. I'm not giving that up without a fight. But faith, for us, is not just assent to some proposition. For us, I mean those in the Reformed Church, acquiescing to evidence that demands a verdict, even when the evidence is rendered in glowing color. Again, this, I think, is what faith means to us who live now. Acquiescing to evidence that demands a verdict, even when that evidence is rendered in glowing color. No, faith, as our tradition puts it, it is a gift. And it is the gift not just of knowledge of Christ or apprehension of Christ. It is the gift of Christ himself. When you have received faith, this is Luther, you have received Christ. He has been poured into your life in all his power and beauty. Indeed, he has drowned your old life in this pouring in, and now lives in you. I've heard much time wasted on the argument that Christ cannot be at two places or more at the same time. It's utter nonsense. God is not subject to any such constraints. But we say that Christ is up in heaven, therefore we just have a line of communication. Tell that to Luther. He said, no, when you have faith, you have Christ. How do you reconcile this with the idea that faith is a cognitive activity and therefore just a matter of matter? Neurons and synapses and paths blazed across the brain? I think we just have to put that and put that aside for the time being. I think we have to accept that Luther's definition of faith as very concretely being inhabited by Christ, having Christ's entire being, human and divine, poured into you, answers the experience and the witness of many more Christians than our contemporary concerns with physics as opposed to metaphysics. Now, we know how humans are saved by faith in Christ. We're not giving that up. All roads lead to God as long as God is Christ. All roads lead to Christ. However you get there, you come to Christ to be received in faith into the new creation. We ask now how it will be that rocks and rock squirrels will likewise be justified, made right with God as they too are restored 
in the new creation. And it can only be in the same way. By faith of a kind, by having Christ poured into their very being. Listen to that great hymn of creation, of which Psalm 104 is only one. O Lord, how manifold are thy works, in wisdom thou hast made them all. You have ordered the whole of this universe to give witness to your order and beauty. The earth is full of thy riches. And listen to the vulnerability now as he speaks of the utter dependence of all living creatures on him. I love this psalm so much. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their birth, they die and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, thy spirit, capital S. They, the rocks and the rock squirrels, are created. And thou renewest the earth. Is the Bible inviting us to see the continuing work of God's spirit as working outside of just the elect? A question. Indeed, as the waters cover the sea, so shall God's Spirit fill this whole earth for once and for all when He returns. And what if we and those who sense God's Spirit even now, renewing the face of the earth, who can look at that creation, red in tooth and claw, and still see shining through it the renewing presence of God? Are we imagining all this? And what of those of us who see the signs of that spirit, who discern God's hand, not just in his handwork, his handiwork, the animate and inanimate creation, but in human creation as well? Even bolder, as we seek to reach up with the gospel, is this petition from our collect. And your likeness in all your children, let us see your likeness in all your children. We don't mean by this the elect. We mean all creatures, all creatures that are human beings. The imago Dei, the image of God in which we too have been made, and which we are prayerfully set to seek and find in others, in all others. Would that we had been better at discerning this prevenient presence in some of the cultures we have sought to evangelize, not least our own. Now, if this all sounds New Age, I think I know a little about the New Age. That's from which I was coming. And I meet people on the path to New Age thinking, and I want to say we're on the same path, but please understand we're going in radically different directions. (laughs) Don't go there. There's nothing there. I know a little of New Age. And as I was being brought into faith over a long time, struggling, one of the points of contact, ironically, with the universe as I understood it in my New Age, very much Eastern-influenced thinking, and that which Christianity seemed to hold out was encapsulated in this little couplet. The earth is not our home, we're just a passing through. (laughs) That is pure Buddhism, by the way. And let me put that on the record. 
That is the most pure expression of one of the key tenets of Buddhism that I don't know how it could be better expressed. And I read this, I thought, yeah, I can buy this. We're just phantoms going through this imaginary, illusory world onto some greater truth to be ingested into the divine essence somehow. Yeah, I can buy that. The shock over the years then for me is to discover how affirming of this creation the Christian message really is. Far more challenging, far more disturbing. The earth in all its mess is the subject of God's creation, right down to the blood-soaked rocks at Calvary, our home. And it is the eternal home, too, of the one who made it, Jesus the Anointed One. So this place, as such, deserves respect. Our task, therefore, as those who seek to spread the good news, is not so much to capture the world for Christ, but to recapture for Christ the world which has always been his, and which was his from the beginning, And to do in the world, we seek to do the work we seek to do in our own souls, recapturing it moment by moment, mile by mile, soul by soul, creature by creature, for Christ, to whom it all belongs. This world is not just God's footstool, something to be trod upon or kicked around, It is his throne, the place in which he sits and will settle in glory when we can see him once again as he is. Let us make sure that the king, when he returns, finds not just hearts and minds that are ready for him, but hands that are making ready, then as now, an abode worthy of his inhabitation. And as we wait and work, Let our every breath be a psalm of thanksgiving for this good and beautiful domain, which is his and ours also to love and to care for. Amen.